we get the show on the road here. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this uh, opportunity we have to come together and to study your word together. Uh, Lord, I pray that this time would be uh, productive for us, um, not just intellectually, but spiritually as well, that we would um, massage all of this truth deep into our hearts as we study what your word has to teach us uh, this morning specifically about the subject of baptism. Uh, Lord, we want to understand this. We want to understand uh, the difficult things in your word. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would uh, grasp what it is that you have to say to us. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, as we're getting started this morning, uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will. To Genesis chapter 15. We're going to start there this morning. We've got a couple of different passages we're going to look at. Um, just by way of review, as you're going uh, over to that passage, last week, you'll remember, we were uh, continuing to deal with uh, various biblical passages that relate to the subject of baptism. And as I said at the beginning of this series, we're not just looking at New Testament passages. That's a mistake that a lot of Christians make, is only looking at the New Testament uh, when they want to talk about baptism. We, of course, want to look at the New Testament, and we'll be doing that a lot this morning even, and we have been doing that already a lot, and we'll continue to do it more in future weeks. Uh, but we also want to understand the Old Testament. Right? The whole counsel of God is what we want in view when we're looking at theology. And um, last week we were looking at the fact that Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 of his book, refers to baptisms that were happening in the Old Testament, right? You remember that. He explains that the, the Levitical laws, that there were all kinds of washings and baptisms that were happening. And so we went back and we looked at that. We saw the various baptisms that were being performed in the Levitical laws of, of holiness and cleanness and so on, and how those baptisms were used with water or with blood, right? And they sprinkled, they poured, they washed, they did a whole number of things and all of those Old Testament baptisms were designed to be symbols of the cleansing away of moral impurity, right? of the cleansing away of sin. They were signs of that. Uh, the author of Hebrews made it clear they were just signs. right? They weren't actually doing that. They weren't actually washing away sin. Only the blood of Jesus washes away sin. But the Old Testament baptisms were signs. Right? And we saw then at, at the end last week that Ezekiel was pulling some of that language from Leviticus and those baptisms, the, the sprinkling of water and so on, and he was applying it to prophecies about the New Testament. And so we see then sort of the unity of Scripture there, seeing that baptism, this idea of washing and washing away, the symbol of washing away moral impurity, that doesn't just pop onto the scene out of nowhere in the New Testament. That's something that's firmly rooted in the Old Testament. So that's what we were looking at last week. And so just kind of the, the main point of last week, as a preface to what we're dealing with today, the main point of last week was that baptism is a sign of washing. Right? Baptism is a sign of the washing away of sin. That's the one, one thing that it is, right? a sign of, of blessing for God's covenant people. But on the other hand, what we're going to talk about today is sort of the, I don't know what to call it, sort of the flip side of baptism. Because on the one hand, it, it is a symbol of blessing, a symbol of forgiveness of sins, a symbol of washing and so on. But on the other hand, baptism is also a sign of covenant judgment and a very serious sign of covenant judgment. And so that's the idea that I want us to look at 
today. We're going to look at some covenant judgment uh, as it relates to covenant, covenant signs, and then to baptism. Okay, And this is going to be really important because it's going to give us a rich understanding of the sacrament of baptism. Uh, it's blessing and judgment. And we're going to see how those two relate this morning. So firstly, uh, just very broadly, look with me at Genesis 15. Okay. Uh, that's where I asked you to turn a moment ago. Genesis 15, if, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. This is uh, God continuing to make his covenant with Abram. Right? And you remember the covenant, uh, the promise of the covenant that God made to Abram was that he would give him descendants. Right? And Abram here in chapter 15 is at a kind, of, a kind of crisis in his faith where he's saying, Hey God, you promised this, but I don't have a son yet. You know, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. When are you going to actually fulfill your promise here, God? I'm waiting on you. And God enters into uh, a covenant with Abram here. that reestablishes the covenant more accurately. And uh, what he does is he puts on a demonstration to show Abram how serious he is about fulfilling the promise that he gave to him. And I won't read uh, this whole passage here, but I'll just explain to you what's going on. What God commands Abram to do, right, is he takes a certain number of animals. Uh, the animals are listed there. And he cuts the animals in half, and he lays them in two rows. So there's a walkway between these animals that are cut in half. Okay? Yeah, it's that gruesome. Right? This is a very, a very gross scene. So you've got the animals cut in half, laid in rows, and a walkway between. And that's when verse 17 picks up here. And let me read that for you from chapter 15. Verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And so you see, here's what God's doing. Okay, he, Abram lays out these animals. And then God appears as a ball of fire floating in the air, and he passes between the pieces, right? He goes in that walkway between the cut animals. And what God is doing there is he is initiating what theologians call, this is a very fancy term, they call it a self-maledictory oath. A self-maledictory oath. And what this oath means is that God is saying, look, Abram, if I fail to keep the promises that I have made to you, namely the promise to give you a descendants. If I fail to do that, then may I be cut in two and killed just like these animals on the ground. This is not an original ceremony to Genesis. This is actually a common ceremony in the ancient world. Kings would do this when they entered into an agreement. If they broke the promises, they were saying, listen, if I break the promises then may I be cut in two and laid on the ground like these animals. And so this is significant when the God of the universe comes to Abram and says, I will fulfill my promises. I will fulfill them. And if I don't, may I, the God of the universe, be cut in two and killed. Now, this is a significant promise on God's behalf. And it shows you that in covenants, we not only have this idea of covenant blessing, right, where where the promises of the covenant will come true, but you also have this idea of judgment happening. And this is, not some theologians here point to the fact that this is sort of a, a precursor to the Jesus, not Jesus being slaughtered like these animals on the cross, because he took our judgment. 
So we'll come back to that later. But my point is, in this passage we see very clearly, in covenant you not only have this idea of blessing, but you have this idea of judgment. And that carries over not just within the Abrahamic covenant itself, but it also applies to the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which, as we've talked about a hundred times now in this series, it is circumcision. Circumcision, we talked about at one point, that circumcision is a sign for Abram of covenant blessing. And the the blessing that God promised to Abram is descendants, namely Jesus. And that's why the sign of circumcision was applied to the male reproductive organ. Because it's through the process of reproduction that the Messiah is going to come. Right? That's how God's going to fulfill his promise to Abram. So that's how the sign is applied. And so it's a sign of blessing for Abram. And it also points to, um, as Jeremiah points out in chapter 4, he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. And so circumcision is not only the sign of God's promise to Abram, but it's a sign of, of God's promise to those who walk in the faith of Abram. Right? They need to have not just their, their flesh circumcised, but they need to have their hearts circumcised. They need to have faith in God and trust in him. So you've got all these spiritual blessings and promises that are signified in circumcision. Okay? That's the one side of it. But then on the other side, circumcision has a much more rich symbolism because it's not just blessing. Circumcision also symbolizes covenant judgment and curses. And it does that in this way. First of all, circumcision right, requires the shedding of blood. You can't perform that right without blood being shed. And blood being shed in the Old Testament is thoroughly significant of sacrifice and death. But then more powerfully, I think, if you look at Genesis 17, you can just sort of flip the page over. Genesis 17, verse 14. Listen to what God says. This is when he is giving the sacrament of circumcision to Abraham, right? He's giving him this covenant sign, and he's saying, all right. He's explaining it to him. Verse 14 of chapter 17. He says, any uncircumcised male... Who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, on the one hand, the cutting away of the foreskin, that symbolizes the cutting away of sin, of moral purity. That's the covenant blessing side of it. But on the other side here, God says that the cutting of the foreskin also symbolizes the fact that if the person who is circumcised, the person who receives the covenant sign, if that person does not walk in faith like Abraham, then that person will be cut off from God's people. You see that? That's what God's saying. If the person who receives the sign of the covenant does not walk in faith, then that person will be cut off, just like the foreskin was cut off. And you see that? So on the one hand, circumcision symbolizes blessing, the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises of God. On the other hand, circumcision also symbolizes judgment. And you can see the, the difference between receiving blessing and the difference between receiving judgment 
is walking in faith like Abraham. Circumcision symbolizes blessing for those of faith, and circumcision symbolizes judgment for those without faith. You can see there's a lot to this here. Now, that is how uh, circumcision was viewed here when God instituted it in Genesis chapter 17. Now, this idea of a covenant sign symbolizing both blessing and judgment is not limited just to circumcision. Because when we turn now to the New Testament, we see that this idea is applied also to baptism. Baptism symbolizes blessing, and it symbolizes judgment. And I'll show you that here. We're going to walk through a couple passages. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Here in uh, Mark 10, while you're turning there, Jesus is uh, talking with his disciples. And um, let's see, what verse? Uh, verse 35 and following. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and this is that famous account where James and John come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, we want to sit at your right hand. Right? We want a seat at your kingdom that you're going to have on this earth. Of course, they're misunderstanding Jesus' purpose here uh, when he, as he's coming because he came to die, right? not to rule at this point. But James and John, uh, they're asking for this, verse uh, 35. And in verse 37, we have Jesus' response. Now listen to Jesus' response. Excuse me, it was not, um, not verse 37. It's verse 38 is his response. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And we'll stop there. Notice what Jesus is saying. James and John want to rule with Jesus. And Jesus says, hold on a second. You guys are missing the point of why I'm coming here to this earth. I came to be baptized. Are you able to undergo the baptism that I'm going to undergo? Now, of course, this would be sort of confusing to them at one point because they didn't understand what Jesus was doing. But looking back, we see, hold on a second. What's Jesus referring to here when he says, are you able to undergo the baptism with which I am baptized? What's he talking about here? Maybe. His crucifixion. Yeah, the cross. That's what he's referring to here. He's talking about the cross. Because he's saying, guys, I didn't come here to rule. At least not yet. I came here to die. To be humiliated. To be crucified. And so you see what Jesus is doing here. He's saying that his death on the cross is a baptism. Now how is his death on the cross a baptism? Well, it's because it's a judgment. Not a judgment on Christ himself. right? He didn't do anything wrong. But it's a judgment in the sense that he took upon himself the sin of his people and he died for them and he received the judgment that we deserved. And in that sense, his death on the cross is a baptism. This, by the way, is why Paul in Romans chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans chapter 6, Paul will say that we are, as Christians, as believers, buried with Christ in baptism in which we were also raised with him. 
How were we buried with Christ in baptism? Well, Paul here is tying the um, he's tying the imagery of death and baptism together in the sense that we were buried with Christ in Jesus' baptism. And our baptism is a symbol of the baptism that Jesus underwent when he was immersed in the judgment of God on Calvary. And so Paul is making these connections here with baptism and death, baptism and judgment. Baptism is symbolic of the fact that the floodwaters of God's judgment have come upon Jesus instead of us. You see, there's, some, there's rich imagery of judgment connected with baptism. And it doesn't end here. It doesn't end here. 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, you don't have to turn there either. Um, but just in passing, in 1 Peter 3, uh, the Apostle Peter is uh, trying to comfort his readers with the assurance of their salvation because they're undergoing a lot of persecution and a lot of suffering and uh, just a lot of issues like that. And uh, what Peter does is he goes back to the Old Testament and he says, hey, look, he says, you know baptism, that, that sacrament that you guys received? Well, let me tell you something. Noah's flood was a type of the baptism that you received. And this is what Peter does. He says, the flood waters of Noah, those waters came and they brought destruction on all the wicked. The floodwaters came. They destroyed the enemies of God. They destroyed the wicked. They destroyed the unbelievers. But those same floodwaters also saved Noah and his family because they bore up the ark. So simultaneously, Peter says, the waters of Noah's flood destroyed the wicked and they saved Noah and his family. And Peter says, those waters are a type of baptism. And Peter then uses that to comfort his readers and says, hey, look to your baptism. Do you see that in that same way that the water saved Noah and destroyed the wicked and brought judgment on God's enemies, so the waters of baptism are a sure sign and seal of the fact that you have been saved by the work of Christ. Those waters of baptism show you in a very visible way that Christ has been immersed in judgment and you have been sprinkled clean with his blood. We're actually going to take a much carefuler and uh, sorry, carefuler, that's not a word. We're going to take a much more careful and uh, extended look at First Peter 3 because uh, later on in this series, because First Peter 3 is that famous passage where it says, "Baptism now saves you," which is something we want to wrestle with later on uh, when we're in our theological section. So we'll look at this passage again in more detail, but all my point here is, is just to say that Peter makes the case that baptism. Just like Noah's flood, right, is both blessing and judgment. And the blessing and the judgment depends on belief or unbelief. All right, and then the, the next passage I want to look at, and this is actually the last passage, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What we're seeing as we look at these passages, guys, is, is we're seeing that the, the apostles have a very rich theology of baptism. They don't have a simplistic understanding of it. And they see baptism wrapped up in Old Testament typology. And Paul here is going to do this very thing again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Here's what Paul says. Chapter 10, verse 1. 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that, flowed, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now here, Paul is doing some, some Old Testament typology. And you can see, it just it, he talks about baptism, and he talks about spiritual food and spiritual drink. So he's got the sacraments in view here. The Lord's Supper and baptism. And what he says is that in the Exodus, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt... And when they went through the Red Sea, they received, typologically, a kind of baptism. They were baptized in the waters of the Red Sea. Now that's significant. Because when you think about the Red Sea event, right? the Israelites, God's covenant people, they show up. Right? They're about to be destroyed by their enemies. And Moses cries out to God, and God takes the waters of the sea and he parts it. Right? And they walk on dry ground. I'm sure you've heard the story a hundred times. They walk through that dry ground. They pass through the waters. And they're saved from their enemies. And then what happens? The Egyptians come. They come down into the water. And what happens then? Boom, the waters come crashing in. destroys the wicked. destroys God's enemies. It brings judgment on them. So you see what Paul's getting at here. He's showing us that in the Old Testament, you've got these prefigured events, right, that God ordained in his providence. That the Israelites passed through the waters of the Red Sea. They received a kind of baptism. That baptism, those waters brought salvation for Israel as they passed through them and brought destruction on God's enemies. Isn't it interesting to note that if you look at the imagery here in 1 Corinthians 10... You look at the imagery in Peter and 1 Peter 3, that judgment is symbolized by the immersion of water. Right? Immersion symbolizes the judgment. Notice that it was Noah and his family that actually didn't, they weren't immersed. They were above. But it was the wicked that received the immersion. This, by the way, is why when we... We'll talk about this more when we're in our theological section looking at baptism in a few weeks. But this is why, classically, our Reformed people, we don't make a big deal about the particular mode of how baptism is administered. We can say an immersion baptism is perfectly legitimate. A pouring baptism is perfectly legitimate. A sprinkling baptism is perfectly legitimate. Why? Because all three of these modes symbolize different aspects of baptism. Immersion, as we see in the New Testament here, Peter and Paul, immersion is sort of a symbol of judgment. And for believers, when we are baptized, say, by an immersion, we're symbolizing the fact that we're buried with Christ. We're buried with, the, with Christ in the sense that he took the judgment that we deserved and he was immersed in the floodwaters of God's wrath. When we receive a baptism by sprinkling, right? sprinkling goes back to Ezekiel 36, it goes back to all the Levitical baptism. Sprinkling is symbolic of the sprinkling of blood on the altar, the atonement, the forgiveness of sins. 
the purification from moral impurity. And pouring out, we'll talk about uh, the importance of that later on. But it has a rich symbolism in the New Testament as well. All of this to say, though, right, just like circumcision, baptism symbolizes judgment and it symbolizes blessing. It symbolizes the wrath of God and it symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. Okay? You can see that what the New Testament authors are doing with this is they connect it with the events of the Old Testament. And so here is uh, sort of my conclusion wrapping up point here, and that is this. For those who believe, for those who believe, baptism is a sign and seal of washing and purification because Jesus took the judgment for us. Okay? So when a believer is baptized, right, baptism is a sign and seal of our being buried with Christ and our being raised with him, being sprinkled with those living waters that Ezekiel talks about, where we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And we've been forgiven. And we can be assured of our salvation. But for the wicked, for unbelievers, for those who are not God's people, Baptism is not a sign and seal of moral purification. Rather, baptism is a sign and seal of judgment. It's a sign and seal of judgment by virtue of their unbelief. Because just like the waters of Noah's flood saved Noah and his family and then destroyed the wicked, so the waters of baptism are a sign and seal of salvation for God's people and of destruction for God's enemies. We will return to this idea of baptism as a sign and seal for believers and unbelievers in our theological section because we're going to have to deal with and wrestle with the question of the efficacy of baptism. What exactly is happening when baptism is performed? You know, what's the spiritual work that happens and so on? And how does that relate to our salvation and our faith and that sort of thing? But you understand what we're doing in this part of this series as I'm bringing this to an end here is that we are gathering data. Right? We're looking at, at scriptural passages related to certain subjects. And in a couple of weeks, when we get to the theology section, we're going to put all of this together. And I encourage you, that's where you want to bring you know, your paper and your pen and take some notes, because that's where we're going to take all of this data from history and scripture, and we're going to try to put it together in a simple and straightforward way. Okay? So I want you to remember what we talked about this morning, because it's going to come back up again in future weeks. All right, uh, we have to finish up here. Are there any questions that you guys have about this particular subject or about these texts that we're looking at? All right, well, if not, then let me uh, close in prayer. And again, I encourage you to um, uh, continue to meditate on these subjects. And uh, I think you'll be surprised how many other scripture passages other than the ones that I mentioned will show up and sort of uh, help enrich uh, your understanding of the sacraments. So let me uh, close in prayer this morning. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, we thank you that, um, you know, we see so much connection between Old and New Testaments, Lord. We see so much... uh, so much work that your apostles did through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they, uh, they show us so much 
of how you work the same way throughout history. It's so, so encouraging to see that, Lord. We see we can depend on you. We see we can trust you. Lord, when you made your promises to Abram, as we saw this morning, you, you took upon yourself a promise of judgment on yourself if you failed to fulfill the promise. And Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that uh, we can trust your promises, that you, you do fulfill them. And we thank you, Lord, for the sacraments, for baptism and the Lord's Supper, that we can celebrate these, these sacraments and, and we can see that, that they assure us of our salvation and that they strengthen our faith. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand them better through this series. And we pray that you would give us clarity of thought to continue to think about them. Lord, we pray now that you'd prepare us to praise your name and to worship you in spirit and in truth and to hear the preaching of your word this morning. And we pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.